Hey gang, it's John. It's a beautiful day in Denver today, so I went for a walk. I thought I'd record this while I was out and about. Uh, thanks for listening to a special bonus episode of The Hustle. We're bringing back Rock Doc director John Brewer. John was on a couple of years ago. We talked about his then new uh, documentary, Beside Bowie, about Mark Ronson. This time we're talking about the new movie he put out recently, Chuck Berry, The King of Rock and Roll, which just recently came out on Blu-ray. We have a giveaway for that. I'll tell you about it at the end. Anyway, this is a really interesting conversation because as I think people know now, Chuck Berry on the one hand should be lauded for being on the Mount Rushmore of creating rock and roll, but he's also a very complicated person. And this documentary doesn't shy away from touching on some of those things. And so John and I have a conversation here about what kind of a guy Chuck was. And, um, you know, he's a hero and a villain in some ways in his own story. And how his doc compares to Hail Hail Rock and Roll. I have to give a huge thanks to our listener, Andy Shaw, for helping me with some information about, uh, about Chuck and making it easier to do this interview. So anyway, hope you enjoy this. Hope you'll check out the movie. And uh, thanks again, John, for talking with me. Uh, first and foremost, I want to ask you this. What is your favorite Chuck Berry song? Maybelline. Maybelline. That's the one, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that's I, the one that started it all. It's a very difficult thing to ask somebody that question. Because if you're into the artist, you really basically immediately think of 10 songs. Uh-huh. And they go, right, well, is that better than that one? But it, Maybelline is the one. You can't stand still to Maybelline. No. It's impossible. I'll tell you why, because I shot the um, Chuck Berry uh, footage, the, what I call the cutaway scenes in California, and we were out in the desert. It was so cold. I mean, I couldn't believe that it could be so hot during the day and so cold at night. And all the crews were out. Uh, on this garage, uh, garage, uh, uh, what do you call it, gas station. Uh huh. And, and there was, I had two massive big speakers put up, uh, bins, li- literally bins, put up and put Maybelline on, and everybody was dancing and they just couldn't stop. <laughs> and that's how we kept the warmth going because everybody yeah. was moving, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Have you, you been can't... a Chuck guy your whole life? Have you always been a big Chuck fan? Well, supposedly, because, you know, I love the Beatles covers and I love the Stones covers and, you know, probably before I knew who Chuck Berry was. Mm-hmm. But you used to look at the back of the Stones covers and basically you see Berry, 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 Berry. And you just go, who's this Berry guy, you know? Right, right. But as years went on, of course, Chuck Berry basically became sort of um, – you know, the stable diet, because the fact is that you realized how important he was. 
mm-hmm. and uh, the rock and roller that he was. And uh, I don't think we ever, I probably have to a certain extent because I've made this film. But the thing is that uh, I don't think we've really known who Chuck Berry was or is until up to recently. Yeah. Because, you know, people, you know, Chuck wasn't shy of of publicity, mm-hmm. but he certainly uh, felt that he, you know, it wasn't his first thing on his mind. Yeah. And quite honestly, yeah. you know, okay, that comes with success, but, you know, what's the next thing I get paid for, really? Yeah, exactly. In fact, I would I would venture to say that the British hold Chuck in higher esteem even than Americans do. Uh, at least that first, the British invasion, those first guys, the Beatles and the Stones and stuff like that, he impacted them and they impacted everything. And I wouldn't, I wonder if they got it even more than we did in some ways. So here's the deal. When you and I talked before, which was probably three years ago now, something like that about beside Bowie, you would mention that the thing that you were working on next was a Chuck Berry documentary. And I remember thinking at the time, this is going to be interesting because I feel like as the years go on, some <laughs> unfortunately some pretty unsavory things about Chuck Berry and his life and his practices and stuff like that come to light. And I thought, I wondered, I wonder how John's going to handle that. Well, let me uh, ask you a question. Yeah. How do you think John handled that? How do I think you handled it? Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. How do you? How were you planning on handling it? I thought you handled it very sensitively. You did. There's that large chunk in the movie with the lawyers and everything, debating, you know, the cameras in the bathroom and stuff like that. How do you? When you went in to make this movie, did you feel like you had a responsibility to tell both sides, or were you? Were you? What was your interest level in that? Okay. The first thing that anybody said to me when I uh, agreed to do this, I was sitting in, in the house of his dear wife, the matter, and um, her, her daughter, uh, one of the daughters, they were worried that I was going to bring up certain things. And I wasn't quite sure what they were worried about. And so I eventually over dinner said, come on, guys, there's something on your mind. What is it? And they went, we just don't want dad known as a pedophile. And I went, a pedophile? Okay. And they said, yeah, well, that's the last thing that he's been accused of now. I mean, it's unbelievable mm. because the girl, the man act was under 16. And I said, well, I'm not making this film based on whether he had done something wrong or whether he had intent of doing something wrong. I'm not an expert on the Man Act, but I found out halfway through making the film that the Man Act was never written or made law because uh, of, of driving a teenager uh, under age over the state border. She was a, a prostitute, mm-hmm. it's known, and the fact is she didn't look anything like 16. And on top of that situation, he was doing something to help her because she was working for a friend uh, of Chuck's 
and Chuck was opening a bar and he was going to put it in as a novelty, which he did, dressed up as a Native American. And quite honestly, that was on their mind. And I went, this is all ridiculous because that's not what the film's all about. Yeah. So how do I handle that? Well, how do I handle the fact that, you know, uh, there were several other things that were problems. But what was on his side was that he didn't take drugs. He didn't yeah. really drink very much. And, you know, quite honestly, was he a person that was a, pre was he a predator? Was he somebody that was uh, sexually unstable? It's none of really my business, and I don't think anybody's really interested in that. But mm -hmm. if you want to handle on to it, I think the man was black. Yeah. And he was in the wrong area. And he basically didn't want to go by the rules to a certain extent of having to be suppressed as a black man. Mm -hmm. And he basically pushed the boat out too far. Mm -hmm. He had the money. And he really did have the money. Yeah. And the situation was that he basically said, I'll do it my way as far as I'm concerned. If, if I have to buy my way through it, I'll buy my way through it. Yeah. Hell, rock and roll. I mean, the fact that he was turned away from that theater because he was black and wanted to take his father out. Uh, I don't know, he's about 17 or something. And um, they wouldn't let him in because he was black. Yeah. Stuff like that's got to stick with you. And, 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 and he went to perform there. Yeah. And, and the whole concert was there. And it's as if, well... Uh, it did actually happen. He bought a restaurant. And the reason he bought the restaurant, because they wouldn't let him have, come and sit down and have a meal. Yeah. And I'm sure there was something around the theater that he bought too. Mm -hmm. And then he opened a club that was a total mixed club. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. you know, and they closed that down because he was black. Yeah. And you know, Charlie Chaplin didn't get arrested and thrown into jail. And he Good was point. found guilty of the Man Act. So, the whole situation was that, how did I handle it? I knew I had a problem because not only did this guy write a book, an autobiography, claiming all the affairs that he'd had, and his wife basically uh, reacted to my question. I said, how, how did he, you react to Chuck's book? And she said, well, I just wish he discussed it with me before he told the whole world. And you instantly start feeling, yeah, that would have been a good idea. Yeah. But, you know, he was a bit of a shock value person. But mm -hmm. the situation, he was two people. One was, he was Charles Berry. Mm -hmm. And he was Chuck Berry. And when he went out of the front door, he was Chuck Berry. And, you know, what stays on the road, or happens on the road, stays on the road, you know. But, you know, when he came back, he walked in and she said she was, Char he was Charles Berry. Yeah. And Chuck Berry when he went out on the Mystery Magical Tour. Yeah. And that's so I said at that time, before we started, I'm going to make this a bit tongue in cheek mm. because let's get rid of all the nonsense beforehand. So the guy goes to do reforms or reformatory school or whatever you call it there. Mm -hmm. And he basically did something stupid. 
as a kid did. He ran out of money and they went and robbed some store or whatever it was and tried to make their way back. Well, there's not just one occasion. There were two or three occasions that they robbed some store trying to get back home. And they were in LA, California rather. So what I did was sort of make a, a mixture. I, I used the technique that Sin City with the black and white, with the color. It looks color. fantastic, yeah. Thank you. And also what I did was to make it look and jive, jive it up. Mm-hmm. And I think that sort of worked. Mm-hmm. And then we got rid of that. So we knew that he was a bit of a rebel and a bit of a villain yeah. and a bit of this and a bit of that. But rock and roll, who isn't, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's how we try to deal with that. With respect to the the bathroom situation, uh, the true story around that is a complete. They they actually shaked him up. They they literally turned him upside down and shook him upside down, and and everything sort of came up when he basically bought that restaurant, mm-hmm. and. Somebody said that there was tremendous uh, smoking of marijuana in there and various other drugs and things that were going on. And um, so Chuck said, tell you truth, what we should do is to put cameras in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. And he did have something to do with it because he ordered it to be done. Mm-hmm. Well, whether I, I, didn't, I didn't sit in there with him. And, right. you know, as far as I'm concerned, I don't think he really look, looked at it in such a serious way. Yeah. And people basically were blackmailing him. And yeah. we know that's true because he's got the evidence there. I saw the evidence. Yeah, it's true. Quite honestly, I've got to cover that area because everybody's going to bring it up. And the tax problem too, because I'll tell you something else, which wasn't in the film. He... He, he, he's, he's so funny looking back on it, but he said, uh, how long do I have to go in if I accept the deal? And it was six months or something like that. And he said, oh, and uh, do I have to pay the money back, which is the tax money they accused him of? He said, no, if you go in, you don't. But if you, if you want to not go in, you've got to basically pay the tax and um, that will be it. Mm-hmm. He said, I'll go in. <laughs> I want to write my book. And and that's what happened. Yeah, yeah. He said, I can't get away. I can't find the time. Let me go in. Let me do this. And I make money by doing it. So let's, <laughs> let's deal with it. So that's what actually happened. Uh, only Chuck, Bra- Chuck Berry's brain works that way, yeah. you know? <laughs> it's yeah. so funny. Okay, I want to ask you specifically, what did you feel uh, like when you went into making this movie what did you feel like you needed to tell that hadn't been told already? And the reason I ask that is because there's famously Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll out there, which is one of the great rock docs. You use it, in fact, in some points to augment your storytelling. What were you trying to add or make different or bring to the Chuck Berry story out of the gate? Well, look, the thing is that what is a documentary? I mean, everybody thinks it's two people sitting down and, traveling with uh, archive and various things and making a sort of an informative story with Doc, uh, with Chuck Berry and Hell Hell Rock and Roll. To me, that what it, it's short. If you want to call it a documentary, I think it's set out as a documentary. I'm not quite sure it 
succeeded as being a documentary. Mm. And the reason I say that, nothing said that the, the filming was bad or badly directed or whatever. It was none of those things. But Chuck was the, probably the most difficult person to make a film with. Yeah. Now, my film would definitely, I can't say this for sure, but pretty sure, would never have been made if Chuck was alive. I wondered that, yeah. And the reason why is that he was really difficult. Mm-hmm. Now, when one makes a movie, one budgets a movie, one raises the money to make the movie, and you go out there and you basically film the movie. Number one, Chuck Berry started from the very beginning in this way of being obstructive because he went, where's my money? And they said, oh, don't worry about it, Chuck. Um, what, what do we need today? Well, I want, if I told you that the original film started with, I think somewhere around about $80,000 going to Chuck Berry and it ended up 800000 I remember. I mean, neither of those fi- figures are accurate, but I'm telling you that's what it was roughly about. And every time he went out, he said, well, if we're rehearsing to go and film that, that's another that's separate. That's not in my contract. So they, every day, they went out there and it was laborious to the extent that producers were getting very upset and the studios were getting upset and eventually they got the thing made. But it wasn't to their liking. They wanted it to be more, in, more of an interview. Mm-hmm. What it turned out to be is a really great concert. Mm-hmm. And they managed to get that over. Concert was great. Yeah. And the three or four things that they threw in there to get to that stage was great. And there's no question they, they, the Keith argument did happen and somebody had the sense to keep the cameras on, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, he, he started playing games on the stage with changing key left, right, and center. But, you know, <laughs> but other than that, it, it was a Chuck Berry concert to me. Yeah. yeah. But they never got into Chuck Berry's uh, really sort of problems that he had. He was just, he was a very, he was over-intelligent. That was the problem. He was too bright. And he, he needed to be, he needed to be more um, laid back. And, uh, you know, I can tell you story after story, but, you know, in England, for instance, there was a gig being played and he came over here and it was a Sunday, Sunday or Saturday, one of those. And he literally, I knew the promoter well when he was alive. And he said, look, Chuck, it's great. I've worked out the exchange rate because Mm. the contract says dollars. Yeah. He said, well, I've worked out the exchange rate and in sterling that equals this amount. And he went, yeah. And he said, well, is that okay? He said, no. <laughs> so I said, why? And he said, because it's in sterling. He said, I want dollars. Uh-huh. No, but this is the exchange rate of the bank today. And I've put a little bit extra just in case this rate doesn't work. He said, I need dollars. And that's it. And he said, look, you know, the, what does a promoter do on a Saturday afternoon when banks, banks <laughs> never opened here on the weekend? Right. 
<laughs> and he had to go around to all the hotels, get all people's dollars that they'd left there or paid for this <laughs> and that. And that. And he had to collect the money, otherwise he wasn't going on that night. Oh. And I know the guy so uh, when he was alive, so I know this is true. And Chuck said, oh, you got me my money? That's fine. Mm -hmm. If he didn't get the right, uh, and I put the rider into the uh, film, mm -hmm. the rider, he had to have this amp, that microphone, this thing, because, you know, if there was something wrong, it was put in the rider, you will be fined. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He used to give them a fine before he played. Yeah. Money had to be in cash. Right. And that's why Chuck got fairly unpopular. Yeah, yeah. In the other way, he died with uh, 54 million in cash and fifty million in property. Yeah, the real estate. Oh my I've always wondered that because he's so famous for demanding that cash up front and you figure what's, is it, what's he doing with it all? Is it when it, so he died with $54 million in cash still laying around. Yeah. That's amazing. And laying around in quarter of a million, uh, right. not, for 250 million pieces of real estate. Yeah. In fact, the, the, he does appear in my movie, but his real estate lawyer, was petrified to do the interview with me really? because he didn't want, oh, if you saw the footage that I have, God, I don't want to, I can't answer that. I, I don't want to answer that. I can't answer that. And it's because he was going to be leered in by me to say, well, how did he make all this property and, and, and be so successful? Yeah, yeah. He's a shrewd guy. I believe it. You'd have to be. Oh my gosh. I'm curious how you got some of the people that you got in this movie. There's Joe Perry, there's Johnny Rivers, there's Alice Cooper. Gene Simmons always brings some very thoughtful thoughts to the, to the documentaries that he's involved in. How did you, I've tried to get Johnny Rivers on here for years and never had any luck. How did you, how did you get these people on your movie? 50 years of experience in the rock and roll business. Is that it? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, Johnny, I knew before forever. And uh, Johnny Rivers is, uh, I'm sure if you went through to him, you, you could get him on your show. He's, he's a delightful man, but he jumped at the chance of basically doing this. And you've got to understand, I have a crew, a team of people that are around me most of the day and some of the night. And the fact is that if we're making a film, we're working on it a year before we even start working on it. So Johnny was an old friend of mine. He came to see me in England years and years ago, uh, basically because of the love of horses. And, uh, you know, I just knew, and I knew that he loved Chuck and that he feels that practically his success was created by Chuck. And, um, yeah, he was... Uh, he was across the road, literally in LA and um, in Beverly Hills, and he ran over with his guitar, sat down, and started playing. And then he remembered who I was. No, but it was it was <laughs> a little bit like that. Yeah. And um, he just did it. And okay. It's a great interview. Great interview. Yeah. Plus, the other thing that I thought was so interesting is, um, you know, for anyone who the. Chuck's family is so involved, Thimetta and everybody, the kids, all, all of them pretty much, in your documentary. 
the last one of the lasting impressions of Hail Hail Rock and Roll, and I hate to keep going back to that, but that's the only thing anyone had, you know, a, a movie wise yeah. to, to think about Chuck. You know, Thameda's on screen for two seconds, and Chuck immediately kind of makes it stop, and so you think that there's something weird going on, or that you know, does she can she not express herself? But she was great in your movie, and I wondered if um, how did you get the whole family to agree to be on it when I guess I guess I would have assumed that they didn't want any part of these kinds of things. Well, first of all, you made reference to the Hell Hell interview. The, 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 it's not for me to criticize the interviewer, but the problem was that to come out with a question, number one question, in relating to Chuck's affairs with his mistresses was really quite silly because Chuck was sitting there and Chuck uh, realized that she's going to say, what are you talking about? Or, yeah. You know, why, why are we doing this? And so he grabbed the microphone and took it away from her. But the question was going to be, well, you know, what, what do you think about these? Yeah, that's uh, not, that's not smart. Don't kick off your interview that way. No. And he thought, well, if I got that in, at least I got one in, you know. And But you don't – my attitude was that um, that was one of the fears. So she did a rehearsal – with herself. I think she'd rehearsed it many times because when it first came out and I asked her the first question, it was like the answer was immediate and mm. she was not going to go away from that course that she was on. She was not going to pull in the sails at all. Mm -hmm. She was going to say what she needed to say and that's all I needed because I don't want to know about her reaction of saying, well, when he released the book, you know, I don't know who any of these women were, mm -hmm. but I mean, yeah, he did. He had his a secretary who was a mistress of his, who actually would not go on on camera, mm. and he she was living on Berry Park. And that's at the 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 place that he built there before he yeah. died. She was also in Hell Hell Rock and Roll, right? Yeah. She was a lady he hired at like 21 years old and stuck yeah, with him the whole time. Yeah. I wondered if there was something else going on there. Yeah, there okay. was. And she was very good. And, and uh, Thometa said, yeah, well, she collects the money and she makes sure that it's all there and whatever. But that yeah. was his way of doing it. The yeah. other situation was that he had um, a girlfriend for many years that uh, I don't know whether I, I could, yeah, I could tell you this story, but uh, it's not in the film, but uh, his lawyer, who did a lot of talking uh, at the end about the, um, the, the raid on Barry Park, was the, told me the story that he threw a dinner party for Chuck. And Chuck says, what's a dinner party? And he said, well, you come around and, you know, you have dinner with us and we'll invite some friends because he was very worried that Chuck didn't know really how to behave in society or didn't know how to behave at all, really, and kept to himself and kept close to what he, he enjoyed. And he said, oh, well, let me think about this. Anyway, he came back, he says, I'm coming. So he says, oh, great. And uh, he turns up and he brings a little bit of um, uh, wrapped up in paper 
uh, and a little plastic carton. And he says, what's that? And he said, well, he said, that's our dinner. <laughs> he said, what are you talking about? We're cooking for you and everything else. And he said, yeah, but the uh, matter made this. Because he knew, I'm not going to tell you her name, but he knew that he was going around to have dinner uh -huh. with his mistress. So he, they thought, I better make food for his miss for my husband. In the, and I'll make some for his mistress. Oh, my <laughs> And so he said, no, no, don't, don't worry about that. We're taking care of the food. Uh -huh. I just thought it was fantastic. <laughs> this guy didn't really know what a dinner party was. And he brought <laughs> food, not for his wife, because his wife made the food. Uh -huh. So there was a little bit of exclusivity there for Chuck. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Because he didn't really know. And when you think about it, it's quite possible. You know, he never went to dinner parties or went to prison. You know, you saying that, I'm realizing you're right about that. He he constructed a reality for himself that he lived in every day. You know, it was the it was the cash before the shows. It was the traveling without a suitcase. It was yeah. driving himself to every gig. No one was ever going to drive him. He had his routine, and he never varied from that ever. And so, it does, you saying this about a dinner party? I could imagine he didn't. He didn't seem like a go with the flow kind of guy. Sure, we'll go to the party, or sure, I'll come to the dinner party, or you know, to the movie. It, that just wasn't his reality. He created everything very, you know, confined to just what made him comfortable. So, one of the things too that I thought was really interesting was just how, you know, going back to family and continuing on the family topic. His kids and everyone speak so highly with him of him and seem to love him. You mentioning the Chuck versus the Ch the Charles, they kind of brought some of that stuff up too. Did he died in 2017? I think Thameda did too. Did either of them? Did Chuck know that you were making this documentary? No. Was he involved at all? Nothing. No, he was not involved at all. It was okay. totally negotiated between Thameda and myself and their lawyer who was running, I mean, she runs the estate at 93, mm. but she is remarkable. And uh, they have a lawyer there that also basically does the paperwork and bits and pieces. And I think it's run by committee between her son and the daughter, the girls, and this lawyer guy. Mm. Okay. Yeah, I wondered if he, because you were you mentioned this earlier. I don't know if you could tell a story, the Chuck story, while he was still alive, and do it completely and thoroughly like you did. You know, he wouldn't well, stand for it. I, I had nobody really hammering me, mm. going and saying, "I don't want that." I would, I, I'm, there's nobody looking at. I suppose what you call it is like looking at the rushes or anything yeah. else. There were no rushes, but the fact is that today, everybody can either see what was shot, you can see it immediately. So the fact is that at the end of the day, nobody was on my, uh, looking over my shoulder. Yeah. So I could write what I wanted to write and shoot what I wanted to shoot. So quite honestly, that's what I did. Mm -hmm. But it's um, interesting, but he was not, uh, I did, it, he knew nothing of, the, of me okay. making the documentary. Okay. As I said before, I don't think I would have been, able to have made it yeah 
Why do you think it was so important to Chuck to be known as a poet? That's a word that comes up a lot when people, when he describes himself, when other people does, uh, describe what his art, what makes him special. And it's definitely there. I mean, he, no one told a story in two minutes, two and a half minutes, like Chuck Berry did. Why do you think that was so important to him? Well, first of all, he was a poet. And that's why it was important. Okay. He saw himself that way. Totally. Yeah. And I think that he was. I think he really was. And I think he was uh, articulate enough to basically, if not more than enough, to be able to write in such a way without any music, uh, descriptive way, as he did. And anyone that can write and make up words like curator <laughs> and um, botherin and motorin, and I mean, these are words that basically are not in the Scrabble dictionary. And, you know, he made it because it, it he wrote it as a poet in a way. And he obviously was a songwriter, a lyricist, and they came together. But his work as a poet is also completely separate. And if you read the poems, it's unreal. I mean, the songwriter situation, the lyricist, is basically, I mean, he created the teenager. Good point. When you think about it, what what was the environment like? The environment was just as you think of a teenager: soda fountains and and uh, milkshakes and jukeboxes and whatever it was that interested somebody being called a teenager. He would write about, and therefore he created words, and he therefore created, as a poet does, a feeling. And you then take that and interpret it your way. Mm-hmm. Motivating <laughs> is a word that encumbers motivating, moving forward, mm-hmm. you know, and then there's fast cars and big cars. And mm-hmm. that was the way he, he, he thought. Yeah. Why do you think it was? And I, this has come up. I, I don't feel like he's given that he gave a satisfying answer to me anyway about why he sort of stopped when around the time of the British invasion, did he feel like other people were coming along and um, doing what he did and he didn't have a place anymore? I mean, there's the great 28, the famous great 28 songs. He's got way more than that, but you know, the famous, the, the peak period Chuck Berry hits and then it kind of stops after that. He doesn't feel like it feels like he doesn't have much of an artistic motivation or, you know, provocation to make more. Okay. Well, that's a big one. And I think that he went in, I, I say, it's, he came out, he went in, he came out. And at the end of that period or those two periods, what happened was that the Beatles had covered their songs and the Stones had covered their songs and knowing quite a lot about the British invasion the bands we we as the Brits were actually selling selling back to America R&B and their own blues 100% 
Yep. So the fact was that suddenly they, the English rock bands or English bands that became English rock and roll bands as we know them basically start. The Beatles were enormous, absolutely enormous. And when they came into England, I mean, I don't know whether you know this, but they sold more bass guitars on that day of that um, of that show in America than any any country has ever sold bass guitars in America because uh, they'd been playing stand up bass mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and now it was electric bass. Bob Dylan went electric when the band came off stage or basically then turned into his supporting band. What happened was that the electric bass was sold in unlimited amounts. Mm. Now, when you look back at that and the British bands coming in to America, you suddenly realize that there was a problem. The problem is that there was black music and there was white music. There were some white people trying to play black music and so on. But when Chuck put himself out there, they thought he was white. Mm -hmm. And the white station started playing him. And it basically, an old music term, they cr he crossed over. Mm -hmm. So what happened was, all of a sudden, there's Chuck Berry's out there. They suddenly realized that, well, he's black. He's not white. And what he's doing is getting, and when promoters were putting him on, they didn't know that. And suddenly they realized he's not white, he's black. Mm -hmm. So it was roughly at that time when uh, you, you know about the rope situation in the clubs, where the rope went down the middle of the club and black mm -hmm. people were on one side and white people on the other. Right. If you carefully watch him performing, you will see he crosses over. And I make this reference to his daughter when she, because she was on the road with him for 40 odd years. Wow. And I, I said, I noticed that, or he would always do that. He'd cross like this. Mm -hmm. And I said, why did he do that? And he said, well, because the audience started doing it. Mm -hmm. And when the audience started doing it, the rope was being stretched and the rope eventually disappeared. Mm -hmm. And in his own way, you know, I, I, there's quite a few of them. And Nat King Cole did this as well. I mean, not the same trick, but he'd mingle people up so that the authorities couldn't basically stop the audience from mingling. And that w was really important. So the music became very much, was attempting to become very much yeah. a, 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 basically a, a stir, mm -hmm. right? Which is really what happened. And he was then competing when they, the music or the, <coughs> came out of the theatres because the, that's where you went to see the bigger concerts mm -hmm. and went into the arenas. And you have to, the stadiums, uh, you know, there's Chuck Berry and his band trying to compete with mm -hmm. a, a band that had been playing his songs, right? Mm -hmm. And that they were very much bigger now. They were pulling the numbers. He came to Europe. And there again, places weren't being, you know, uh, theatres were the biggest places that people could play. And 
you know, the interesting thing is he was making more money out of England and Europe than America. Mm, so, I could see that. So that's, to answer your question, really, is it that, did he stop? Was he, did he have enthusiasm? Yes, of course he did. But he, he just decided that, hey, I'm not quite sure what's creating. Is it just me? Or is it a band? No, it was him. And that's why he said, oh, I might as well save the money and I'll go on the road myself. Yeah. And that's where that whole routine, I need four musicians, I need four amps, I need a drummer, and I need this. And he said, what kind of mu musicians do you want? Musicians that know Chuck Berry music. And, you know, there's the toothbrush in the, <laughs> in the case and off he went. Yeah, yeah. That was Chuck Berry, but Chuck Berry should have had a manager at that time, which he didn't. He was pig-headed around that situation. I bet. He wasn't going to share money with anybody. That's right. And so what himself. happened, you know, he got to a certain level. And a certain level was the demand level. Get some manager in there to take him right up there to market him and to use his... now. If you'd asked him in the early days what sync meant, he wouldn't be able to tell you. Well, sync is, as you well know, is, 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 is taking music and publishing, mm -hmm. recording, and basically saying, put it to a picture. Mm -hmm. Well, you probably never thought about that. Mm -hmm. What happened was it went everywhere. Mm -hmm. And then syncing into, uh, into films, and then he said, oh, well, we'll create a music publishing company then. And that's what he did. Yeah. But the guy, the has got to exploit the things. Yeah. And it was that, I mean, if Chuck Berry was alive today and wanted to go on tour, he couldn't do what he set out to do in, in dare I say, the old days. Mm -hmm. It couldn't happen. Yeah. You, know, you can't start walking around today with... Yeah. $30,000 in your pocket. Know. You know, uh, That's what know. I was kind of saying earlier about creating this very confined reality for himself where he could just continue to do his thing very comfortably. Because I, I'm just a guy like him. Did he run out of things to say? Did he feel like there's more, you know, money was so important to him? Did he realize there was more money to be had? playing 28 songs every weekend for the rest of my life in cash than there is to put some thought into a new album or we're in the 70s, maybe I should try disco. We're in the 80s, maybe I should try R&B. He never thought that way, ever. You know, his, his imagination was limited to doing the same routine every day. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, the fact is that he did what he wanted to do himself, and he did it. The problem is that it was a different attitude. He wasn't being a musician because I'm a musician, and I should be stay. I should be a musician. He wanted to do all sorts of things. He was very clever. Yeah. And anybody can he put all his money into real estate. Why? Because yeah. they move it around. You know. He almost went from being a musician to a businessman. I think he was always a businessman in his head. True. Yes. He was, yes. He was very, very, very talented man mm -hmm. and creative person. Mm -hmm. If you notice, I look at it from a, a common man situation of looking at it, saying, "Hey, I'm not in that industry or anything else," and well, you know, I, I look at it from there and I say, "Wow, 
he really enjoyed himself. He went out and did what he had to do. The only problem is that times change. Yeah. And if he doesn't know that he can earn thousands and thousands of dollars in sync or in publishing or whatever it was, I can? Oh, okay. Yeah, but you've got to staff it. Then the people came in and accommodated. Then the people came in, the big companies, and said, well, we'll give you half a million dollars. Half a million dollars. What do I have to do? Just keep writing music. Mm-hmm. So then he says, right, I want my own Disney park. Mm-hmm. And he goes out, and then he realized, well, comes a load of problems with that. Because <laughs> two people die in a swimming pool. Somebody shoots. Somebody doesn't pay. The promoter doesn't pay Leon Russell. So he takes off again in the helicopter. And the next thing that happens is, oh, I'm not doing this again. It's mm-hmm. aggro. Yeah. And, you know, so it's all very strange. He, he yeah. fancied being a bit of a farmer, too. So there's all these tractors are still sitting there. Really? Right as we're talking to you, the <laughs> tractors are sitting there. And he drove every one of them. His tool shop, his screwdrivers, everything uh-huh. else that he had. I mean, it's all collapsing. Yeah. But they're still there hanging up in the rack. Wow. And I said to Junior, I said, Charles, why didn't, why is this all dilapidated? Uh-huh. And he said, because I was told not to touch it. And dad wouldn't let me touch it. And that's it. And See, I went. You talking about business managers. My thinking is some, it, it's, a, it's unfortunate because some savvy person could go in there and turn Barry Park into a sort of Graceland, you know? And then, then the family continues to make money for generations. Who would, I mean, that would be fascinating to go tour the, the home or the, you know, the, the Chuck Berry. Yeah. The Chuck Berry stuff to go see all that. But you see, they uh, won't do that because yeah. he strict instructions that he didn't want that. So wow. I said, was this dilapidated when your dad was alive? And he said, yes. Ah. So, well, he's got all this money. Why he just have a team of people come in? And mm-hmm. He said, well, the swimming pool was in the shape of a big guitar. And he said, when the girl died in there, or two people died in there, he said, and there was all the cabins that were around, which looked like, looked like a little motel. Mm-hmm. He said, uh, it just uh, it fell apart. They filled in the pool. Mm-hmm. And but left the shape, and the roofs were. There's a golf cart, you know, electric golf cart, and the roof had collapsed on top of the golf cart, so they just left it there. Ugh. And that's what I was fascinated with. He was still alive, and he knew that uh, all of this could be. But he'd lost the interest. Yeah, and they'd knocked it out of him. And that's why, because the authorities would come down and say, you don't have permission to build this and you don't have that. And there was a problem last week and there police cars everywhere because of drugs. What are you doing? You know, I don't want this. I just want everybody to have fun. Yeah. And It's uh, unfortunate because I, there's generational wealth to be had there. If, if somebody could come in and clean up Berry Park and allow it to be a sort of Graceland thing. Okay, real quick. I, uh, first of all, I, I mean, I think it, I think it, this, your movie is the, is the definitive word on the story of 
Chuck Berry in movie form. There's no question about it. What is next for you? What are you going to be working on now? I'm working on three films right now. Really? Uh, and documentaries are getting better and better and better. They and sure are. I hope that I had something to do with that. The budgets have increased because I think that you need that. Documentaries became a little bit too serious and a little bit too sort of the same thing. And I'm trying to, or have been trying to break away from that. Now, the three things uh, that we're working on, we're working on one, which is a, do you know who Link Ray is? Of course, yeah. What the, the story and doc on Link Ray is being made. Nice. So that's... He nothing. needs that. People yeah. know that sound. They don't know the Link Ray story. That's fascinating. <laughs> Good for you. And secondly, I'm making a film on the sixth Rolling Stone. I don't know when... Let me tell you the story. Okay. Sixth Rolling Stone is that, that the Rolling Stones were created as a piano band. It was created by Brian Jones and a man called Ian Stewart. That's what I thought you were going to say. Right on. And Ian Stewart was definitely the sixth Rolling Stone. Now, I knew Stu very well, and I worked with him on various things because I had a band called Tucky Buzzard that basically was Bill Wyman's creation. And I worked with the Stones at that at that very earlier era. But Stu was the man that Andrew Oldham walked up to when confronted by Stu saying, where's my, because they used to wear uniforms mm. in the beginning. They, they had their outfits. Mm -hmm. My outfit's not on my peg. And he said, no, we thought the best thing to do was we'd have you playing off stage." And, of course, none of the boys were there. Mm -hmm. And he turned around and said, what are you talking about? This is my band. Mm -hmm. And Mick and Keith had come along. And, of course, they picked up Bill as well. Mm -hmm. And you just don't look the same as them. Now, without going into great detail, he had a very large, desperate Dan jaw. And he didn't look like all the rest of the band. I mean, you know, as we find out later, he'd play golf while they were trying to get up <laughs> after partying all night long. And he'd basically go, come on, boys. They would not move without him saying that. Mm -hmm. And he made sure he was told that he would get, yeah. as they would, the same share, and he dedicated his life. And as Keith very recently said, I still work for him. Mm. I get up and go to a gig. I still work for Stu. Amazing. And he was so, you know, one day he'd like to play and one day he wouldn't. If he wanted to play, the piano was always there off stage. Mm -hmm. And he basically was one of the greatest pianists, what I call the honky-tonk era, mm -hmm. basically around. And yeah. he died in 86. And it was one of the saddest days. And But he, the band, all of them say, would not never have continued this long if it hadn't been for Stu. Great. That's a and great I've topic. Written, Good one. I've written a story about Stu, mm -hmm. which was factual. Great. Cool. And what's the third? 
can't tell you that. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I've told you there's three coming. Okay. Uh, the reason I can't tell you is because it's not been signed yet, but okay. it be one of the... If you could work out, there's a, a certain artist out there who basically, and he's black too, mm. and he's created, and that's probably one of the greatest sounds that we've ever had. But mm. it's all uh, strange at the moment with this um, COVID thing. Yeah. And um, he's sort of lay, laying very low, as they okay. say. Okay, okay. Anyway. Well, no matter what it is you're going to do, we know it's going to be great because Bad Company, Mick Ronson, BB King, your track record of making fantastic rock docs is stellar. Thank you Thanks so much. For, you bet. Thanks for talking with me, John. It's always a pleasure to tell your story and to hear about your thoughts behind your movies and share those thoughts with my listeners because uh, we're just rock nerds like you are and we love to watch these movies. It's so great. Wow. Yeah. We've got, still got some coming, so don't worry about it. Okay, good. Well, thank I you, can. sir. Thanks All for right. talking with me. Thank you. All right, there you have it, John Brewer. Hope you guys enjoyed that. I, I think there's a really interesting conversation about Chuck to be had that maybe even goes deeper. He's a very conflicting, diverse, interesting, good and bad character. So thank you, John, for having this conversation with me. Now, guys, they're giving away two copies of this movie on Blu-ray to two of our listeners. We're going to be pulling the winners of those docu of those uh, Blu-rays next Sunday, the 27th. Okay, and as everyone, I think, knows by now, in order to be qualified to win, you have to be a Tier 1 Patreon supporter. That's $2 a month. You set it and forget it. That automatically puts you in the running to win anything that we ever give away on here. So we're giving you a week to listen to this. If you want to be in the running, uh, go join Patreon real quick. The link is in the notes, the description of this show. And next Sunday, if I'm not, if I remember with Christmas going on and everything, we're going to do a random drawing and uh, see who wins the two copies of Chuck Berry on DVD, on Blu-ray. Okay, that's the deal right there. I wanted to close it out with one of my favorite Chuck Berry songs that I don't think people know as well. This is Havana Moon. I love this song. And I love it too because I don't think it sounds like the rest of Chuck's stuff. Anyway, thanks folks. We'll be back on Tuesday with a regular episode. She rock and roll. She dance and sing. She hold me tight. She touch me lips. Me eyes they close. Me heart she flip. Havana Moon Havana Moon But still alone Me drinking the rum Begin to think The boat no come American girl She tell a lie She say till then She mean goodbye Havana Moon down alone was good to run me fall asleep the boat she come the girl she look till come the dawn she weep and cry return for home the whistle blow me open me eyes was bright the sun was blue the skies me grab me shoes me jump and run me see the boat head for horizon. Havana moon is gone to run. The 
before she sailed, me love she gone, Havana. 